you're a new company, it's doubtful that your 50th hire or your 100th hiring decision will be, ah, let's hire a, an extremism or terrorism expert to lead content moderation on our platform. You've just got way more pressing priorities as you're building your organization, whether that's engineers, other policy officials, whatever. So it's these smaller companies, these newer companies, where I think there's real room, scope, for GIFCT to have near-term impact, bringing more companies into the fold. Companies that maybe you and I haven't even heard of, or certainly we don't have their apps necessarily downloaded on our iPhones. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 25th, 2020. It's another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on platforms and disinformation. Today, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke to Nick Rasmussen, the executive director of the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism, also known as GIFCT. The GIFCT is an organization working to facilitate cross-industry efforts to counter the spread of terrorist and violent extremist content online. It was founded in 2017 by four platforms, but now it's transitioning to a new life as an independent organization, which Nick is heading up. Online violent extremism is one of the most difficult problems of the internet age, and collaboration between companies and governments may be the only way to effectively tackle it. But how can the GIFCT balance this with the need to respect legitimate free speech? How is Nick thinking about the transparency and accountability problems that such collaboration might exacerbate? And why might the GIFCT be one of the most important institutions for the future of online free speech? It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 25th, collaborating to counter violent extremism online. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. We wanted to start with the most basic of the basics. What is the obscurely named GIFCT and what's the problem that it's trying to solve? So first of all, thank you for having me on on the program. It's a, a real privilege to join a conversation that I feel like I've been listening to for some time. And so I'm glad to be here. GIFCT, the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism. It's an organization that was first created in 2017 by four of the largest tech companies. Google, YouTube, Twitter, Microsoft, and Facebook came together in 2017 for the purpose of combining efforts and working across the technology sector to prevent terrorists and violent extremists from exploiting the digital space, the online platforms where so much of our social media activity takes place in their modern era. GIFCT was created, as I said, in 2017. If you think back to where we were in time and space and history at that point, I was still in, in government um, and we were still very much in the throes of dealing with the phenomenon of, of the Islamic State, Daesh, uh, and their activity in this online domain. And so in, in many ways, I think the companies felt significant pressure at that point to show that they were, in fact, doing something, that they were not just dealing with this as a one-off, but that they had a, a significant problem that they were dealing with, with terrorism and violent extremism on their platforms. And they needed to show progress and show that they were willing to work across company lines and across traditional competitive relationships to, to make some progress against this problem set together. Flash forward a couple of years to where we are now, and GIFCT is in a different form, a different kind of organization. Um, for the first few years of its existence, those four companies I mentioned earlier ran GIFCT out of their own company resources. It was GIFCT activities that were being organized, but, but organized by personnel, executives from the four companies. So Facebook personnel, Twitter personnel, Microsoft and Google YouTube personnel were all doing GIFCT work. In the latter part of last year, the companies came together and decided that they needed a new way of organizing GIFCT's work. And they committed at that time to spin off GIFCT as its own independent entity, uh, a 501c3 nonprofit organization that would have its own executive director, its own dedicated full-time staff to carry the work that I described earlier forward. That transition process was, was put into play a little bit earlier this year. I took the job in the early July period, and I am now you know, several months into a process of building that independent non-governmental organization. And again, the purpose here is to work across company lines to prevent terrorists and violent extremists from exploiting 
online platforms. It's a pretty simple and profound mission, but of course, laden with all kinds of substantive complexity. And we'll have a chance to talk about all of that. Right now, it's an organization that's relatively small. Uh, GIFCT has three permanent staff at this moment in time, uh, depending on when we end up uh, posting this tape. I hope to have more uh, more staff working with me at that time. But of course, I'm working with some of the largest and most well-resourced tech companies in the world to carry this work forward as well. So we'll we'll dig into the complexities that you mentioned in, in just a second. But before we do, you mentioned being in government. You obviously have a significant background in counterterrorism work within government. Can you give listeners just a, a brief sort of sketch of your previous life and uh, what led you to be interested in coming on to GIFCT? Sure. So I departed government service at the very end of 2017, after 27 plus years working in government. And for the latter half of that career, I was focused almost exclusively on counterterrorism issues and related national security issues, a career that very much pivoted at the time of 9-11. And again, I'm not I'm not unusual in that regard. But I finished my, uh, my career as the director of the National Counterterrorism Center, uh, the entity set up in the aftermath of 9-11 to deal with our information sharing challenges that, of course, contributed to the failings at 9-11. And as I left government service, I certainly carried with me a bias that, you know, gee, the, the important work, the work I was involved with for so long, takes place in the classified space, takes place in the operational space, uh, whether that's law enforcement, intelligence, our military work against uh, our terrorism problems around the world. But I also knew that there was a whole series of things going on outside of government that had genuine impact on the on the problems of extremism and terrorism. And so when I left government, I was looking for ways to continue making a contribution to our collective efforts against extremism and terrorism. And clearly, what I've learned, what I've what I've come to appreciate is that the multi-stakeholder environment is really an essential component of our national effort or our, even our international effort to deal with extremism and terrorism. It's not just a government problem. It's not just a tech sector or private company problem. It's also a problem that involves academic researchers. It involves governments. It involves uh, civil society organizations. And I know this is something, Evelyn, you've written very compellingly about. It's this multi-sector, multi-stakeholder dimension to this set of problems and other problems involved with internet governance that makes these problems so complex, but also so interesting. And so, again, as I was looking for ways to continue making a contribution on issues I care about, the GIFCT opportunity seemed to be one that was too good to pass up. Yeah, great. So as you mentioned, the, the GIFCT was set up in 2017 by those four companies, but it was really in the aftermath of the Christchurch massacre, I think, from my perspective, that it attracted a lot more governmental attention and became a central focal point for both governments and industry as a solution for dealing with violent extremism on social media more effectively and more broadly and, and across the industry. And as you said, crucially, as, as part of that, at the end of last year, uh, the GIFCT announced that it would be reorganized as an independent NGO. So can you maybe talk a little bit more about that process in a bit more detail, how it went from being a private industry body to the transition that it's going through now and sort of what the end goal is? How does it seek to embody that multi-stakeholder model that you were just talking about? Sure. And I'm I'm glad, um, Evelyn, that you mentioned Christchurch, because again, as I ran through the brief history of GIFCT as an organization since 2017, I should have paused for a moment on Christchurch. Christchurch, given how truly awful in every way that incident, that that murderous uh, incident was in New Zealand, was a crisis moment for at least in my perspective, from my perspective, the the tech industry, because even though GIFCT had, had pre-existed or predated Christchurch, what what Christchurch showed was that the industry as a whole, taken as a whole, still wasn't adequately postured to respond to an event of that sort. And that whatever things you could point to in GIFCT's early years, uh, in terms of knowledge sharing, contributing to shared understanding of the problem set, all of the kind of things GIFCT was doing to advance tradecraft, to advance knowledge sharing, if Christchurch church could still happen, then clearly something wasn't right. And I think certainly the attention that came in the aftermath of Christchurch from governments around the world, certainly the French government under President Macron, New Zealand government under Prime Minister Ardern, 
came together along with the heads of the tech companies and a whole series of other heads of state and, and issued the Christchurch call, which called upon the tech world to do better. It also certainly placed obligations and expectations on, on governments, uh, on civil society as well. But it certainly pointed the mantle of responsibility at the technology sector and in particular large companies and said, you need to do better and do more. One way of responding to that additional burden and additional pressure was to invest more in GIFCT as an entity and to not simply rely on it as kind of a voluntary coalition of the willing, which I guess is one way of describing how the early years of GIFCT looked. So we are, as, as your question presupposed, in the midst of that transition right now, where I am transitioning from being something that was activity that was undertaken inside the framework of a company to now activity that is guided and led by an independent NGO. Interestingly, a feature of the, the GIFCT standup that is sometimes missed, uh, or at least underplayed in, in my view, is the, the role and creation of an independent advisory committee, an IAC, that, that was announced and stood up earlier this year, roughly at the same time that, that my position was was filled and I took the job. The IAC, the Independent Advisory Committee, consists of 20 individuals and senior leaders of organizations, some participating as individuals, some representing their organizations where they come from. But these 20 individuals who are truly global are comprised of individuals from all around the world and represent government, academia, civil society, And as much as you can in any group of 20 people includes voices from a a pretty wide and diverse array of perspectives. That IAC serves an important function for GIFCT in advising me as executive director, but also the four operating board companies about whether GIFCT is living up to its mandate, is accomplishing its objectives, and is doing so in a way that, that, you know, it's consistent with the spirit of what led GIFCT to be created uh, in the first place. So, I know for a fact, only four or five months into this, that I'm very, very heavily reliant on the, the expertise and perspective that comes from having this IAC, which I've told many of the, those independent advisory committee members, you are the conscience of the organization in many ways. And they're there to advise in the classic way. But I'd go a step further and say they're also there to, if necessary, call bullshit on something and say, wait a minute, you say this, but this isn't happening in that way. Or you have committed to this, but you haven't delivered on this. And so that's a voice and a perspective that I think will be very, very important to give CT going forward. Because it's one thing to say you're going to make this transition to an independent NGO. Uh, it's another thing to execute it. And I think it's fair to ask... Uh, that we keep careful watch on GIFCT to to make sure that we do execute on what we say we're going to do. And how exactly does that IAC work then? Like what teeth does it have? I think one of the concerns that you hear a lot about the the GIFCT, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but, you know, it was set up by these four platforms that are just so powerful in so many spheres of life, you know, and that's something that's attracting a lot of concerns generally. And it would apply here too, that they, you know, set this up. They are the ones that have the significant resources, the experience, the technology and things like that. So in terms of being the conscience, what kind of teeth or what processes are in place for the IAC to substantively influence how those companies make decisions? Sure. And, you know, as as in any organization, there are both formal and informal means of exercising influence. And you're absolutely right, Evelyn. The four companies that founded GIFCT are the ones principally devoting resources. You know, if you consider personnel, time, money, these are the organizations that are contributing the resources to stand up the new GIFCT. The IAC, though, I would argue is more than just kind of a standoff advisory committee. And I'm certainly in my post government life, there are advisory boards or committees or various structures of, of different kinds that I'm a part of. And some of them can be very hands-off. You know, you meet once a quarter or you meet once, you know, on a biannual basis and you hear a report or two and then you opine. This is the direction the organization's heading. We're broadly in support or you might tweak this or you might adjust that. My experience thus far with the IAC is it's 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 going to be quite a bit more than that. These IAC members are all in their own professional capacities deeply engaged in this work of either internet governance or responding to terrorism and violent extremism 
or dealing with kind of the broader societal concerns that, that come with this online environment that we're all living in. So this is not a body that is short on opinions. It's not a body that's short on expertise. I can't tell you that they function like a board of directors where they will vote to approve a particular move or a particular decision, but they have a fair amount of sway in in helping guide the organization as it sets objectives and helping me set objectives. And as I said, importantly, the ability to say, wait a minute, that's not living up to either our ambition or our our declared set of, of principles. So let's think about it differently. And, I, and even just the meeting tempo, this is a, an organization, an IAC, that has already signaled to me and to the operating board that it won't be content meeting on kind of a biannual or even quarterly basis, that it'll want to meet quite a bit more even frequently than that, and maybe even as frequently as every other month in these early stages. And I welcome that because I think getting back to what we talked about earlier, this multi-stakeholder forum, this is my the best way for me to tap into that multi-stake, the strength that comes from a multi-stakeholder forum is to tap into the expertise of this IAC and to rely on them for guidance and when more than guidance is required for even you know course correction when that's when that's called for as well. So you mentioned, you know, this is multi-stakeholder. Let's talk about the specifics of the stakeholders. So how many platforms are currently part of GiveCT and what are the criteria by which platforms can join? I'm also curious about, you know, how many different government representatives you have as part of the consortium. So to become a member of GiveCT, um, company must agree to uphold a set of standards. One, they must have content standards that explicitly prohibit terrorism, and those must be included in their terms of service, their community guidelines, whatever they publish outward public facing by way of rules about how their platform operates. They also must have the capacity to act on reports of illegal activity when when those terms of service are violated. Um, They must have committed to be willing to explore new technical solutions to these content challenges so that this is not simply a passive activity. They must also engage in regular reporting when it comes to transparency about their platforms. And again, there's a certainly a vigorous discussion to be had about what constitutes sufficient transparency in a transparency report. But to join GIFCT, a company must commit to transparency in a public way. Importantly, GIFCT members and aspiring members also must commit publicly to respecting human rights, particularly freedom of expression and privacy, even as they engage in this content moderation and content removal activity. Uh, And lastly, they must commit to supporting broader inclusion of of civil society organizations in the effort to challenge and confront violent extremism. So those are the kind of core tenets or commitments that a company makes when it chooses to join GIFCT. The four founding members we've already spoken about, Twitter, Microsoft, Google, and Facebook. There are another 10 or 11 companies right now that are that are general members of GIFCT, not in this kind of founding members operating board capacity, but, but also members per se. And then importantly, we're also looking to expand membership. To me, that's one of the kind of priority objectives for the organization over the period of, ahead. Um, we all know that this problem came to public attention first and most prominently on these founding member platforms. As I mentioned earlier, it was the kind of ISIS and Al-Qaeda activity on some of these platforms in the period when that was the predominant feature of the terrorism landscape. That's what brought this issue to the fore. But it's increasingly true that extremism, violent extremism and terrorist activity takes place across a whole suite of additional platforms well beyond these founding members, and not just on social media platforms, but also on other forms of you know, online activity, you know, whether it's a Dropbox, a file sharing platform, um, whether it's gaming platforms, there are just other ways in which terrorists and violent extremists have, have proven able to exploit the online environment. And so one of my goals is to bring more companies, more smaller companies, more newer companies into the fold of GIFCT. Why? Because that's where the activity in some cases is happening. And these are probably the kinds of companies that probably need the most help. They are not going to be anywhere nearly as well-resourced as a Facebook or a Google will be. As one of my Facebook colleagues reminds me sometimes, if you're a new company, it's doubtful that your 50th hire 
or your hundredth hiring decision will be, ah, let's hire a, an extremism or terrorism expert to lead content moderation on our platform. You've just got way more pressing priorities as you're building your organization, whether that's engineers, other policy officials, whatever. So it's these smaller companies, these newer companies, where I think there's real room, scope for GIFCT to have near-term impact, bringing more companies into the fold. Companies that maybe you and I haven't even heard of, or certainly we don't have their apps necessarily downloaded on our iPhones. So again, if we were talking a year from now, I'd hope I would have another half dozen or so companies, perhaps even more, who were part of the GIFCT framework. Let's talk more about how GIFCT helps smaller platforms. I think it's fair to say that one of the, if not the centerpiece of GIFCT is this hash database that you all have. Can you tell us about that, how it works, and how it can help out smaller platforms in content moderation? Sure. And, and let me back up a step just before that, because even the process of of joining GIFCT is a place where we provide kind of an onboarding and helping process that positions a company to participate, to join and then participate constructively in GIFCT. So one of our partnering organizations at GIFCT is an organization called Tech Against Terrorism, run by an individual named Adam Hadley. And he's built a, a team of really, really talented experts on extremism and terrorism, but also individuals who understand the engineering side of this of this problem set as well. And so a company that wants to join GIFCT, we, we basically issue a referral to them to work with Tech Against Terrorism over a period of, of weeks or months to, in a sense, climb the learning curve. They can work with, with Tech Against Terrorism to understand what does it mean to have an effective terms of service framework? What does it mean to have an effective content moderation capability? What can you do with human review? What can you do with other tools? Basically, as I said a minute ago, not everybody's going to replicate what Facebook is able to do with with hundreds, if not thousands of staff persons devoted to this kind of work. So how does a smaller company that may be, that may be numbered in the dozens or, or the small hundreds create a similar framework where they can successfully deal with content moderation challenges? That mentoring is an important on-ramp for, from my perspective to the GIFCT membership process. Just had to throw that out there before we talk about the hash sharing part of this. The hash sharing part of this, or the hash database part of this GIFCT framework is one in which the companies, the founding companies who are, are the largest and the most capable in this space, created a mechanism for identifying material on their platforms that was violative of of terrorism and violent extremist uh, standards and identifying that in a way that it could be shared in an anonymized way, shared but in an anonymized way with other companies so that those companies, if they partake in the hash sharing process, can run their holdings, expose their platforms to against the same hashes that have been submitted by a company that identified uh, material that was violating standard. And then they don't have to discover that material all on their own. So again, let me just give you a brief, what I hope is intuitive example. And this is the way I think of it. I am not the most technical person, but this is the way I think of it. Say one of those founding companies uh, identifies a piece of it, of content on its platform that is linked to Al-Qaeda. Maybe it's a Bin Laden video or a legacy Anwar al-Awlaki bit of content. That company attaches a hash to that material, a stream of digits, 20-some digits in length that then identifies in a unique fingerprint way that bit of material. It's then put into a database that is then made available to other hash-sharing consortium partners, and those companies, should they choose to, and again, it's, it's a voluntary relationship, it is not an obligation, if they choose to, that other platforms can then compare what's on their platforms against these hashes And if a match is discovered, they can then act on that match and remove that content without having to go through their normal processes, as I understand it, of looking at this content. So in effect, the hash becomes the the tip that tells another company, you need to address this bit of material. Obviously, that hash process involves mutual trust. And that is something that I, I know, Evelyn, you've written about and and one of my objectives as 
executive director of GIFCT is to bring more transparency to this hash process. Because I think right now it is something we have not sufficiently explained, uh, sufficiently kind of documented in terms of reliability and, and even audit ability. And so these are areas where I would like to, and hope to make some progress over the year ahead, because I think there's more we can do to tell a story where this is done responsibly. And if there are, in fact, errors, if there are, in fact, breakdowns in this process, that we can bring those to light and address them. And so, again, not to get too far into the weeds of this, but one of the things that's in play is questions about where should this data reside? Where should this data be owned? And with GIFCT now existing as a standalone entity, a non-governmental organization, one option on the table will be, should GIFCT, under my direction, manage that database that heretofore has been managed by one of the companies? Now, there's an easy answer to that in one sense. From a policy perspective, the answer is yes, of course I should. Because if not, then what am I doing as the GIFCT executive director? But there's also an infrastructure question to this. Does this independent NGO that I head up, is there value in having me create the infrastructure to host that data? What legal policy and other questions attach to that decision? And so one of my early priorities as GIFCT executive director is to organize kind of a feasibility study around this set of questions. What would it take for me to take over that hash sharing process in a way that I provide not just policy oversight of that process, but actually own the infrastructure as well. I think doing that would, in a sense, provide a greater basis for trust and confidence on the part of some stakeholders who worry because that database sits inside one company. But it also involves a whole lot of questions that I have to find the answers to before I can just sign up and say, let's build a new database on my infrastructure that I've yet to create. So I'm going to look for a lot of voices. This is where the multi-stakeholder environment comes into play, because there's a lot of voices that will have a, um, a relevant perspective on this issue. Um, and Evelyn, your work in this area is one I know I will be drawing upon as I look to frame the kinds of questions we need to answer to make this decision in a smart way. Okay, so at the third invitation, then I will bite. Um, maybe we can move now from, you know, that has been sort of the description of the GIFCT and the, the compelling case for it as an institution, but moving to some of the concerns and critiques of it. And um, you and I know each other because you kindly invited me to come criticize you uh, at the GIFCT's inaugural multi-stakeholder forum, and I, I never pass up an opportunity to make enemies. But as you know, and as I said then, I consider the GIFCT and what you're doing at the moment and as part of this transition to an independent institution to be one of the most important projects for the future of platform governance uh, and free expression online. And that's not only because of the GIFCT itself and its intrinsic importance, although I do believe that it is uh, intrinsically very important, but also because I believe that it's going to be a model, uh, for better or for worse, for what comes next across a whole range of content areas and across a whole range of platforms. So I think, it, so not to stress you out, but I, yes, I think that this I is really... Enough, <laughs> as if I did not have enough to worry exactly. about meeting my own expectations, now I've got... Uh, so I'll, I'll just... Before letting you go on with the critique, um, Evelyn, when I interviewed for the for the role, one of the conversations with, with one of the tech executives involved a question of scope. What are we talking about here? You know, and at one point, one of those executives said, "We're not asking you to solve the internet problem for us." And I said, well, "That's good because I don't want you know that's not within my power. That's not within anybody's power." But you make a really good point. This. In some ways, the slice of activity that we're focused on here, terrorism and violent extremism, is in some ways more manageable than other information problems that you confront in the internet domain or in the information domain. Because at least with terrorism and extremism, there are some prescription regimes, you know, foreign terrorist FTO lists from the government, foreign terrorist organizations, a UN sanctioning arrangement that, that speaks to you know, specific terrorist organizations around the world. A lot of that framework doesn't exist for other other online harms. And so this is why I realize my slice of this may be a slightly, if only slightly, more manageable part of the problem set if you're looking at it that way. 
Right, absolutely, and it's it's not intended to sort of to fix the internet problem. Thank goodness uh, that leaves some work for the rest of us. But I do think uh, we do see. So I've I've called the GIF CT in my work that you keep kindly mentioning a content cartel because it has this cooperative sort of structure between platforms and governments for the removal of certain content off the internet, but it doesn't sort of have the same necessary transparency and accountability mechanisms that we are demanding uh, from individual platforms in a lot of ways, as you've acknowledged. And I think we are seeing sort of content cartel creep uh, in a lot of areas. And indeed, the GIFCT itself is an example of that because it uses a model that was originally sort of set up in the context of what we call CSAM, child sex- sexual abuse material, which again as you describe it, is sort of an easier problem set. You know, it's a more readily identifiable category of content that sort of everyone universally agrees is problematic and shouldn't be online. And sort of that model, which whatever its its problems, was at least somewhat successful in sort of getting collaboration and, and tackling that problem more effectively, uh, was then expanded to the GIFCT, to the area of terrorist content. And then sort of we're seeing those two models invoked in, in a range of areas, whether it's actually that the GIFCT itself will expand to cover those other areas, uh, like, for example, foreign interference or COVID misinformation or suicide and self-harm content, or whether it's just that that model will become sort of a case study and a sort of, I guess, a model for the same kind of project in other areas. And I also wonder whether there has been creep within the GIFCT itself. So if we look at the transparency report, for example, 72% of the database is glorification of terrorist acts uh, as opposed to actual terrorist direct terrorist content in and of itself. So I think this is one of the areas where people express the most concern about the GIFCT. How do you define terrorist content and glorification of terrorist content, what assurance do we have that what goes into the database meets those definitions? Well, again, in in some ways, I think the fact that the balance may tilt towards glorification at this point of terrorist activities as opposed to other terrorism-related content speaks in some ways to, I would argue, the, the success at removing the more kind of overt pieces of terrorism-related content that populated the platforms in the period, say, four, five, six years ago, where you had much more active recruitment, training, knowledge sharing among terrorists, violent extremists of known or designated terrorist organizations. So this glorification material that you're describing in some ways is, my sense is, material that is probably harder to judge as being purely terrorist content. It doesn't fall as clearly in the in, inside the lines of what constitutes terrorism content. Your point about trust and transparency, though, is a good one, though. And one thing, what I would like to do is introduce a degree of transparency through an auditing mechanism that would allow in a kind of a sampling way, not in a way that, that would kind of peer inside the, the black box, as you've described it, to have another layer of review of every bit of content, but to, to instead do as, as we often do, at least as I was was accustomed to doing in government, having an auditing mechanism which allows us to sample on a representative basis and to affirm that material that is labeled as a certain kind of material is in fact that kind of material. And that auditing process can contribute towards confidence building. Now, that does not solve all of the problems of a content cartel as you've described it. Even the word cartel, though, I think carries with it some baggage and and I think misses the positive end of this story, which is I mean, cartels I know about in my personal experience are, of course, OPEC. And of course, what we know, we know at OPEC, the image that OPEC carries around, it drives oil and gasoline prices higher around the world for consumers as far in, in most instances. And the other cartel framework you mostly hear about involve involves narco-trafficking. You know, your Kali cartels, your Sinaloa cartels. So even the labeling suggests at best a nefarious set of motives around what the the collaboration is actually aiming for. And, I, and I, I would argue that premise because I think the collaboration is aimed at making more efficient the effort to get material off the platforms that we agree. And again, this, this is to your question, that we agree is violative of standards. Now, 
we need to demonstrate how we've reached that conclusion in a more in a more transparent way. Because I agree with you right now, not having visibility into that process creates doubt, lack of trust, and even even creates almost a certainty that there's there's material captured in that that should be maintained on the platforms because it not only isn't negative, but it actually has positive societal value or contributes to to some positive outcomes. And again, that's the message I've been hearing loud and clear from civil society organizations, principally those focused on on human rights to include freedom of expression, that this over-aggressive content moderation actually takes down not just benign material, but actually material that should be preserved or should be allowed to remain on platforms because it actually has a positive. Its continued viability as on the platforms would be protective of someone's human rights or might contribute at some point in the future to the bringing to justice of war crimes perpetrators or, or perpetrators of terrorism-related crimes. I accept that critique. And, and one of my objectives with GIFCT is to find a way to protect that material so that it doesn't get lost and, and we don't lose the ability to use it for the positive societal value um, that it may have or the important contributions it could make to securing justice for victims of terrorism or, or violent extremism. So I, I guess I would submit to you that there's a whole series of questions around the hash sharing process that I embrace. And I, I think that's one of the things it's fair to hold me to account for over the coming years, whether I can make a dent in some of these issues. And I hope when I invite you to next year's multi-stakeholder forum, that the message you or other critics would bring forward is, yeah, they're on the way. They're, they're, they're at least facing up to these challenges in a serious way. I hope that's the critique you're able to make at that point. Well, thank you. I accept um, the, the invitation. And look, I think that that's really very fair. In my work, I've tried to sort of walk a middle path in trying to recognize some of the very real benefits of this kind of collaboration and cooperation uh, across platforms and the very real problems that are there that need to be solved, that potentially can only be solved through this kind of model, while also sort of raising the concerns and critiques that I have. And as a result, I generally get slammed by both sides. So I you know, have uh, civil liberties people telling me that I'm far too friendly and I try to point out to them that content cartel, you know, wasn't meant to be a compliment. Uh, and then I have you saying to me, that's uh, too negative a label. So I, I, I definitely appreciate what you're saying, that it is important to recognize some of the benefits here, because certainly this problem set is not confined to only the big platforms that have the resources and the technology and the expertise and the intelligence teams that you know rival many small states. It is on every platform where there is user-generated content. And if we are serious about sort of solving these problems as a society and not just on a platform-by-platform basis, then sort of that's why I think what you're doing is so important. Can I just jump in there for a quick second, Evelyn, because I think you said something really important here. What I, I guess my biggest takeaway from, you know, four or five months on the job here is that the nuance is everything here, because if there were simple solutions to this, you'd have written about them, um, GIFCT would have adopted them. And instead, what I think we're finding is that there are equally valid objectives across a number of fronts that, that in many ways can align, but in some cases might conflict. And so I really do appreciate the work that you're doing and other colleagues who are looking at this enterprise in that more nuanced way. And I, I look back on kind of almost 30 years of government work that I had before I joined or left government, and I rarely found myself embracing the kind of black or white solution. I tended to think in grays where I would think, yeah, we can do this, but it'll cost us this and it'll create this set of benefits for us. And, and to me, this is classic gray space. And gray space means that's where you need to bring your your best minds and your your most robust thinking caps to the table. And so the the multi-stakeholder model is the one I'm embracing here because I, I actually absolutely understand that the solutions are going to be crafted around a table, virtual or real, that involves a whole lot of different sources of expertise than I was exposed to during my time in government. And so I embrace that. Not everybody comes at it with the same mindset that that you have in terms of looking for constructive solutions, even as you call out shortcomings and, and shortfalls. And that's what I appreciate. And that's why I've been more than happy to kind of look for greater opportunities to engage with you.
Well, I appreciate that, and I appreciate your your willingness to engage uh, and to listen to me. And I certainly agree. There are no simple solutions here. Uh, conveniently, in the paper that I wrote about this, I sort of laid out my critiques and then hit the word limit right before the part where I was supposed to offer solutions. Um, and I thought that was very convenient. So um, that's that's part two coming coming on right on up. I guess one of the main concerns, as you said, there's the free expression concerns here, right? That All of the incentives point to platforms generally over-removing content because they have no particular interest in a particular piece of content on their platform. And so it's easier for them to just err on the side of taking things down rather than sort of the protection of minority rights and really robust protections for free expression concerns. And the reason why myself and others have raised concerns about this model in that regard is because there is centralized decision making, but there isn't sort of centralized remediation for those kinds of decisions where mistakes are made. So if a platform makes a judgment that a piece of content is terrorist content and adds it to the database, it it potentially then could be removed across a whole range of platforms, even if it's a mistake. And anyone that's affected by that decision would have to go and get remediation platform by platform rather than being able to go to the GIF-CT and try and get a remedy in that same centralized way. So I was wondering if you have any sort of thoughts or plans around sort of how to fix that imbalance, I guess. Sure. Um, Well, first of all, I think one of the things that has been introduced and it predated my arrival, though I'd have to dig into it a little more to find out how often this has happened. But now companies that are participating in the hash sharing process have the ability to appeal it's not even appeal. It's so much as it is to say, wait a minute, we think that was not classified or not categorized properly. And then the company that inputted that material could go back and review that judgment. Now, that's not the same as having an affected outside party, the way you're you know, framing it. And that I don't know. I can't promise you that we'll reach a point where that process will exist. I don't know yet. I, I honestly don't know if we're and part of the reason for doing this in a hash sharing way is so that each of the companies participating in the hash don't have to independently discover this material on their own, that this can be, in a sense, a streamlined process. But you're right to point out that that creates risk in that if one error in judgment is made, is that error in judgment then spread across a number of platforms? And that's something that we have to address. Now, your premising point, though, about overachievement versus underachievement in terms of what's included in the hash database or in content moderation more broadly. You may be right in terms of material that we would tie to Islamist extremism, the kind of what what we talked about earlier in this conversation is the kind of easier, lower hanging fruit, you know, material that's tied to an organization formerly designated as a terrorist organization like Al-Qaeda or Daesh or their affiliate organizations. The problem gets even harder and even more nuanced as you move into other areas of extremism, violent extremism and terrorism to include far right, white supremacy, any racially or ethnically motivated extremism that doesn't fall into that other category of Islamist extremism I talked about a minute ago. There, we don't have this. The industry doesn't have nearly the guiding framework that that it has from government and the United Nations that it has with Islamist extremism. So there in some ways, you may have the opposite problem from the one you pointed out, Evelyn, which is there may be an underachievement in terms of identifying terrorist or violent extremist material tied to those ideologies. Why? Because there isn't the kind of automaticity that comes with group membership. Many of these far-right or other extremist groups don't have the kind of coherent organizational or membership structures where you have people wearing lanyards and ID badges and you know, you're, you're not as readily identifiable as being a member of the group and the group hasn't been prescribed. So the, the, my point is we've got to address and take on that taxonomy and definitional issue inside GIF-CT because right now I don't feel we are sufficiently well postured to deal with that. And of course, when we think about the terrorism and violent extremism landscape today, if you certainly here in the United States, most Americans feel the problem is more acute on that end of the spectrum ideologically um, as opposed to this ISIS, Al-Qaeda end of the spectrum where we were 
most challenged a few years ago. So again, another chance for me to set priorities for GIFCT for the coming year, get a handle around how do we define this other, these other forms of extremism and terrorism or put definitional parameters around them in a way that's more predictable, more rigorous. And that's a hard problem. I, don't, I, I can't tell you that I'm going to have a couple of working group meetings and come out with a white paper and have solved that problem. But I also feel like GIFCT could render itself less relevant than it should be if we end up solely focusing on the easier end of the problem set, which is Al-Qaeda and ISIS labeled material. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to dig into that that question of how you're defining terrorist content more. I mean, do you have potential criteria in mind that would scoop up right-wing extremist groups as well? Or what kind of inputs are you getting and and from whom? I'm conscious that, as you say, this is a really, really hard problem. It's a hard problem for the government. Obviously, GFCT being a non-governmental organization, you have a, a different set of problems in defining these groups, but it clearly is crucial um, in the way that you're setting it out. And so I'm just curious, sort of, Acknowledging that you don't have the answer yet, as you say, right. um, how you're thinking about going about getting to the answer. I think the, the way, Quinta, to get around the answer to this is to try to come up with a framework that's behavioral based. If a person or an organization engages in certain behavior that, that falls within a, a, a definitional framework that, that would point to extremism, violent extremism or terrorism, then you, you label that material and that individual as such, and the, and the material that they've put onto these platforms should be dealt with accordingly. Saying that and actually arriving at that, at that framework, you know, the devil truly is in the details. As you probably saw earlier this year, the United States government for the first time kind of put a proscription FTO designation on a right-wing organization. It happened to be a Russian one. I know from my perspective, at least the companies would welcome more help from the government in, in getting that kind of definitional help. I don't think we can wait around for that, though, because I think the problem is too pressing. And I guess the other thing I should say is there's a little bit of an overlap here in the way companies, I, I think, look at this. In some cases, companies respond to this material because it violates their terms of service, even if those terms of service aren't speaking to terrorism per se. If it's something that is encouraging murder or mayhem or, or violent acts, the material may be violative of those terms of service, even if you can't label it terrorism. So in some sense, it's not as if the you know, internet is totally unfettered or unconstrained domain for right-wing extremist organizations to advocate violence. But I don't think we're nearly as well postured to deal with that part of the problem set as we are on the Islamist jihadist side of the problem set. So it's it's about closing a gap here. And I, I I still need to do some work to identify exactly how big that gap is. And I, you know, I haven't complained once about pandemic or COVID environment yet as I've set up this new organization. But the one thing, if I could, if I had a do-over, I wish I could spend more time doing, is actually getting inside what Facebook, Google, Twitter do with content moderation? How are these decisions made? I, I, it's been briefed to me, as you can imagine, any number of times. But I'd, if I were in a traveling mode right now, I'd be sitting across some individuals who do this every day, and I'd be doing what you'd want to do, which is push them hard. Why this, not that? Why did you reach this decision, not that decision? What went into your thinking? What, what standards did you apply? What criteria did you apply? I've still got to do some of that work as a way, as a means of informing myself about how do we get our handle around, hands around this non-designated, non-FTO framework for dealing with terrorism and violent extremism, because that's a, to me, it's a huge gap in our collective response right now. And again, if you're measuring my success in six months or a year, ask me if I've made progress on identifying that problem in a way that it can actually be be uh, be solved. We'll have to do a part two of this podcast, a yearly update uh, with yearly with Nick Rasmussen. So I just want to return briefly to the point you raised earlier about expansion and that, you know, you had this goal or this prediction that there would be, you know, half a dozen or a dozen more platforms uh, within the, the next few years. 
what is the vision for that and sort of what are its limits and how does that work? So are you actively reaching out to platforms? Are platforms actively reaching out to you? Are there certain platforms that you will or will not have involved in this process? I I think it's going to be an increasingly important question going forward, particularly as the larger platforms crack down more and more and a lot of this content therefore sort of overflows to other platforms, how we deal with what those platforms are going to do with with that kind of content. So I'm curious how you're thinking about that expansion. Sure. And and one of the things I haven't had a chance to talk about is our our academic research arm to GIF-CT, something called GNET, the Global Network on Extremism and Technology. And it's a consortium run out of, um, led by um, Dr. Shiraz Maher and scholars at King's College in London, but it includes a host of, of research organizations around the world, literally on, on just about every continent. I don't think we've hit South America yet. That research is an important kind of tipping and cueing mechanism for me so that if, if our academic and research partners point out or, or point us in the direction that this particular kind of platform is proving vulnerable to exploitation by terrorists and violent extremists, well, then I, you know, it does behoove me to think about a recruitment strategy. Should we be approaching them to offer help to solicit the involvement of those kinds of companies in GIFCT's work. I'll signal, signal, single out one kind of sector or subsector of this, and that's the gaming sector. You, you don't have to look very hard these days to read about gaming platforms being a potential collecting place for individuals who have extremist views. Does that mean that they're sharing terrorist recipes the way you know, Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula shared bomb-making recipes? I don't know. But what it tells me is that it's worthwhile to engage willing actors in the gaming sector to see if they're interested in joining this effort and upping their game collectively or individually in terms of dealing with extremism on their platforms. So yes, on one hand, there's a, there's a push and a pull to this. We welcome shows of interest, demonstrations of interest from platforms who want to participate and learn more. But it's also, as I said, incumbent upon me to identify places where this is happening and to reach out to them where that's appropriate. Last thing I'll say on membership is that membership is complex because, as you can imagine, it's one thing if companies offer offer their affirmation to the set of principles I laid out earlier in this confirmation. And it's one thing for them to do that if they are a company that's headquartered in Menlo Park or London or Brussels or, or Paris. It's another thing if they are a company that is founded and headquartered in, to be honest, a non, non-liberal Western, non-Western demo, uh, non-democracy, where it's not always clear to us what um, scope of independence a company actually has to abide by whatever commitments it has made. That's a long way of saying you can imagine platforms wanting to be part of GIFCT and us wanting them to be part of GIFCT but us having to also work through problematic aspects of corporate governance and what exactly can a company commit to and deliver on. And you don't have to think too hard to think of potential companies that might fall into that category. All right. Well, there's a a lot there for our listeners to keep their eyes on over the next year, and we'll maybe look forward to checking in with you in the future. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. Nick, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks very much. I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, look forward to uh, engaging with the whole team at Lawfare in the years ahead. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Patya Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. Thanks for listening, and happy Thanksgiving.